Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. This week saw the release of an explosive House report on Governor Eric Greitens' conduct, and the allegations of physical and sexual abuse within it brought shock, outrage, and bipartisan desire for Greitens to resign from office. The report that's going to come out at 5 will have very graphic descriptions of the governor's behavior. I think this is a sad day for Missouri. This shocked me that someone would do this to another human being, particularly in the 21st century. I don't need to see any more of this movie. It's horrible. It's terrible. I know what sexual abuse is when I see it. The governor of Missouri needs to resign, and he needs to resign immediately. But Greitens himself has no plans to leave and has strongly denied the most startling allegations within the report. And his refusal to leave could lead legislators to initiate impeachment. Before the report came out, the governor struck a defiant tone. I want to say again what I've said from the beginning. This is a political witch hunt. In just 33 days, a court of law and a jury of my peers will let every person in Missouri know the truth and prove my innocence. On this episode of Politically Speaking, we delve into the aftermath of this bombshell document and look at all the legal twists and turns in court in the Greitens saga. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our St. Louis studios today is... Reporter Rachel Lippman. And joining us from our Jefferson City studios today is... Uh, State Capitol reporter Marshall Griffin. And it's been... To say it's been an eventful week in in Missouri state politics would be kind of an understatement. Um, The release of a House committee report detailing Governor Eric Greitens' conduct has, I would say, upended the, the, the very essence of the political structure in Missouri. Um, it, it's a report that when you, you read it, you can't help but feel a wave of differing emotions. And, and Marshall, like, after two days of being in Jefferson City, I am not only exhausted, but I feel just an immense sadness about this entire situation. And I'm interested to hear what your take of of the week is before we kind of dive into the details of what happened. I think there is a real sense of weariness. I don't know. I'm I'm sure there's a good bit of sadness here, too, among um, people that work at the Capitol as they see what has happened with um, this investigation and this committee report that came out this week. But I think there's just a weariness as well uh, as far as, you know, how long this – and, and I hesitate to call it a scandal, but I guess that may be one of the, the, um, one of the more accurate terms as to what, to what this whole situation is. But uh, since January, this, since the news broke that the, the governor had an affair and that, um, and that a report alleged that, um, that there was a, a photograph that's now the center of a, a felony trial coming up next month, there's just been this weariness. I think... Um, as the month and as as the months and as the session has moved on, uh, this has really 
really gobbled up a lot of the, the time and the energy um, among members of the Missouri House and Senate, uh, and not just you know the people elected to represent their their uh, residents, but um, even the lobbyists who come here to try to press their issues, the, the staff members who work in different offices. I I think everyone's just tired of this. It, yeah, and I want to just make an addition before we get into the details. Like some of the legislators that are serving now that have been there since 2012 have experienced the following events. The, the, the Ferguson unrest, John Deal's resignation and, due to sexual harassment, Tom Schweik's suicide, a, a very contentious 2016 electoral cycle, and now this. And, and I could sense from talking with legislators that they're just exhausted and weary, as Marshall mentioned. And um, the report details fairly graphic accusations from the woman Greitens had an affair with of, of sexual and physical abuse. Um, the, the, the main thing that caught a lot of people's attention is that this encounter in Greitens' basement, the woman is claiming it was not consensual. The governor himself has forcefully denied the report's allegations, and I'm going to play a clip now from him where he is doing just that. We expect that tonight's report will be full of more false, outlandish, and salacious accusations. Now keep in mind how this was written. No standards of evidence were used. No witnesses were cross-examined. No one who was representing me was allowed in the room. And no members of the press or the public were allowed in the room. If the committee had waited 33 days, they would have received a full set of facts. Instead, it was decided to publish an incomplete document made in secret. So that statement was made before the report actually came out, and it caught a lot of people off guard because the defiant tone, I think, per, uh, basically told legislators that are going to hold the governor's fate basically in their hands that uh, the governor was going to be taking an, an, a very, very adversarial posture toward them. Marshall, we were both in the governor's office when that happened. What was kind of your reaction when you when you saw his statement to the press? Part of it was not, I wasn't really surprised because this is the way that he has governed and th th this is the way that he ran for office. This is the way he has governed uh, Missouri from a position of extreme confidence of um, of someone who um, approaches this is just my this is my opinion of how he governs, but uh, someone who approaches things from a military perspective, you know, being a former Navy SEAL, which he you know was, and which he likes to remind um, you know the voters of Missouri. Um, it seems like everything. It seems like his approach is to attack, attack, attack. You know, as as if this were some type of military operation, and that's and that has continued at, uh, through this. I've you know he's you know the the, the only the only apology was uh, that that he has had throughout this was that he uh, you know apologized for having what he called a consensual relationship. In some ways, it's not a surprise, but it's also amazing to see uh, that he is you know that his position is maintaining a position of being on the offense in a in a in a pseudo war type um, 
war type setting, I suppose, uh, or pr- approaching things from a uh, from a military attack standpoint. What was interesting was to kind of watch Twitter as uh, the governor was making this statement, and he kept, you know, calling this report a political witch hunt and tabloid trash. And people were sitting here going, "Okay, so the witches are in your own party? Like this is not a political hack job. This was a committee that was five Republicans, two Democrats. This is, you know, your own party coming after you, or you calling your party witches." It struck me as being something that you would expect to hear from a Republican governor if this is a Democratic legislature investigating him or a Democratic governor being investigated by a Republican legislature. And, and, and I want to play a clip now from Senate Majority Leader Mike Kehoe, who is, is making a point that the governor's posture before this report came out is just frankly not helpful toward his cause. Attacking that committee was inappropriate. Um, you know, the governor, I'm a family man and I've, uh, you know, three daughters. I was raised by a single mother and three sisters, basically. Some people say my is my problem all the time. But, you know, I witnessed firsthand um, people taking advantage of women my whole life. And so I take this very seriously. And um, the governor's comments to me were arrogant and uh, not humbling. And I think this is a time when he needs to be that way. And my statement today was I'm worried and I have come to the conclusion that his ability to lead um, is not going to be there. The report can be read on our website or on the House website. So we're not going to go into super specific details about that. What I do want to transition to is what happens next. There was a pretty sizable contingent of legislators who called on Greitens to resign from both parties. Before, as we've talked about on the show, Many of the people that wanted Greitens to step down were Republicans. Um, This time around, Democrats were pretty much unanimous that the governor needed to go. Um, One of the most forceful people who made one of the most forceful advocates of resignation was Senate Minority Leader Gina Walsh, a Democrat from Bellefontaine Neighbors. I have waited. I have let the process played out as a senator. And you know that I have said from the very beginning, let it play out, go through the process. Well, you know what? We've let it play out. And we've seen, if we've seen what came out of it. I, this woman testified under oath. She testified under oath. I cannot imagine the courage that that took for her to sit there and do that. I can't imagine. That is a very personal thing. There are victims all throughout this building in this state of sexual abuse and domestic violence. Some come forward, some don't. It's a very personal issue. They have their reasons. She is a very brave woman, and we are once again villainizing the victim if we do not proceed. Senator Walsh wants uh, impeachment proceedings to begin immediately. Uh, House Speaker Todd Richardson says he's going to wait until after session. May 18th, Marshall, We both have talked to legislators about this, but what's your sense about what will happen if Greitens doesn't change his mind and and step down? Well, I strongly believe that uh, Todd Richardson and Jay Barnes will stick to their original schedule, and that is to allow the the House Investigative Committee to continue its work until May 18th. On Wednesday, he did say that, that they would not be able to come to a conclusion before the, uh, the session ends, and I don't believe that they're going to backtrack or suddenly change their mind on that. Um, I, they did say that they're going to continue to investigate and, and to look into 
look into other things, perhaps also um, Greitens' uh, relationship with some of the nonprofit groups and how that might play into all of this this particular um, you know past relationship with the with you know the, the woman that uh, Greitens used to be involved with. I don't see them caving into pressure from the Senate, even if the Senate um, is in their minds is trying to get the House to do the right thing uh, to actually uh, begin impeachment proceedings now instead of waiting until the session is over. Something else to keep in mind about the calendar, too, here then looking at that is May 18th is set to be that last weekday of the first week of the Greitens trial. And the same way that the defense team was asking for the House committee to wait on releasing its report until the trial was over, they now seem to be sort of in a way giving in to that request sort of after the fact. Like what struck me was what they released in this report now. I don't know the motivations behind them releasing just kind of a recap of what this woman told them. But May 18th is when we think the Greitens trial is going to be approaching an end, maybe have a verdict. And I don't know, you guys have a better read, obviously, on the state level than I do. I don't know how a finding of not guilty on the central charge in this case impacts what they think should happen with the rest of what was outlined in that report. I I mean, I talked with a lot of legislators about this, and I asked them specifically about what would happen if he's found not guilty. And and, and we also talked about the revelation at trial, which we're going to talk about later in the show. And and the, the general consensus I got was it really doesn't change anything. So for our listeners, the impeachment process in Missouri works as follows. Uh, The House votes on whether to impeach, in this case, the governor. And then if that vote by a majority of the House is successful, the Senate picks seven eminent jurists, which is a fancy title for circuit and appellate judges. And then they have to decide, they being the judges, whether uh, Greitens violated a litany of violations in the Constitution. In this case, it would probably be moral turpitude. And um, so my point is that the standard for being found guilty of, of one of the constitutional impeachment maladies is different than what's at trial here. What's at trial here is whether Greitens took a photo of this woman without her consent and place the photo in a position to be electronically transmitted. As Jason's mentioning, that guilty and not guilty at the trial doesn't mean anything. If they already think that there's, you know, moral turpitude offenses in here, why not go forward immediately? Why wait to do a special session? Like, what what are the dynamics at work here there? Well, I, I think the main thing there will be the, the, arg- the argument that, uh, you know, the, this, this session cannot focus solely on this report and what and, and the the indictment against Greitens and the um, and the amount and the allegations and the uh, testimony in the report uh, at some point somebody's going to say you know we still have a budget to pass we still have some other bills we got to do um, you know th- we we can't completely ignore our duties as lawmakers and I do think there will be you know some argument for that especially from the side of the house and that is, you know, we've 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 uh, we're we're pushing forward with uh, preparation for a special session. That's the more appropriate place to deal with this. So let's, but let's save some time for the regular um, conducting of state business. And for, and state business has suffered. There, there's you know, hasn't been a whole lot of bills that have gotten passed. And you know, the Senate is uh, 
of course now in a slowdown uh, mode, as so to speak. If uh, Greitens is acquitted, found not guilty, or if Judge Burleson decides to throw the case out uh, based on you know, the, the latest complaint from Greitens' legal team, uh, the governor is going to use that um, as a sounding board and as a, uh, as a platform you know, to say, I'm innocent, it's been proven, you know, this, is, this, is all, this, this is more evidence that this was a political witch hunt all along, and I'm, I've not, I have committed nothing worthy of being thrown out of office for. Let's move forward. And uh, I, I think there's going to be a push in that direction. Um, but I also don't think it'll make much difference because I think the, peop- you know, the, the seven pe- people who are on that committee signed their names uh, to that. And that's, that is significant because there are, there are a lot of conference committee reports on bills that uh, you know, not everybody signs their name to. They'll, you know, they try not to defeat it, but um, they will also you know, not sign their names to it. When, you, when a lawmaker signs their name to something, they, they're very serious about believing what's in that. And all seven members of that committee signed that report. And so I don't think that there will be, I, I don't think acquittal or the case getting tossed out is going to sway um, the, a majority of people in the House and the Senate if they want to move forward with impeachment. The other thing that we have to keep in mind here is that committee's work is not over yet. Mm-hmm. They are going to extend their work until the end of session. Here is House Speaker Todd Richardson basically explaining that point and also mentioning that um, the governor is 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 a, is invited to give his side of the story when he can. Let me be very clear about this. This is not a witch hunt, and the committee had no political agenda. The committee's task, and its only task, was to conduct the fairest, the most thorough, and timely investigation possible. Before issuing the report, the committee repeatedly gave the governor the opportunity to testify with his version of the facts. That invitation remains open. The governor's attorneys released a couple of letters before this report came out, basically saying that the governor would like to testify before the committee, but was basically unable to provide much information while the trial was still going on. So the opportunity is still there for for him to do that. And uh, Richardson left that that door open. But I have to say, and this may be venturing into editorializing, I've listened to a lot of audio of Todd Richardson over the years, and I've never heard his tone of voice like that. I I, I cannot read his mind. I don't want to be psychoanalyzing people based off what they say at a podium, but he must have heard what the governor said before the report came out. And I think that regardless of how this entire situation pans out impeachment wise, it's pretty clear to me, and not just by the tone of his voice, that the governor has lost uh, the faith and support of someone like Todd Richardson, who is vital to do pretty much anything in the legislature. And I, I, I think that with that door closing, I find a hard time finding any path forward for him to be an effective governor from, from a policy or legislative standpoint. And, and, I, and then, I, I, let me jump in for a second. I don't know if, if either of you caught this, but um, it, it, sounds, it sounds to me like that there's been one point uh, in both Greitens' press conference Wednesday and in the release um, in the press conference by uh, Todd Richardson also on Wednesday that uh, there may have been um, – they may, there may have been an instance of them call, one calling the other liar without using the word liar. 
you know, and what I'm referring to is when Greitens said no one associated with my staff was allowed anywhere near that room, that room being the committee rooms where the, the House committee was meeting. And at the same time, you have Todd Richardson saying we have invited the governor to come and the invitation remains open. It seems like, you know, it, 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 it seems like Greitens is trying to say, you know, I would love to come or I would like to have my people there, but they won't let us in. I interpreted that more to mean, and, and this is something Judge Burleson has said himself, is that there wasn't allowed for cross-examination. Somebody couldn't be in the room. His staff wasn't allowed in the room to hear what witnesses said. Again, we don't know what happened behind these closed doors. No one else was in the room where it happened, to you know, quote a phrase from the play du jour these days in St. Louis. Right. But um, you know, And again, you guys know Richardson better than I do. You have interviewed him more. But I think it was sort of them cherry picking and defining things maybe a little bit differently. They're saying the governor had an open invitation to testify. He is saying this did not follow typical sort of investigative judicial procedure, which is something Judge Burleson has also raised, that it didn't go through a vetting process. There was no cross-examination by sort of an opposing party here, which in this case would be the governor. But the way that, but the way that Greitens presented that point during that press conference he, you know, he made it just in that particular moment. Uh, he made it sound like he was not being allowed to, uh, to go to that room, and made it sound like it was the the members of the House Committee that were not welcoming him there. And that, you know, the the way that he's way he that he made that statement during the during that moment in the press conference, and I think he did that specifically for the cameras. That's just my opinion. I think there's one other aspect that that we kind of have to touch on. I I think that. For a lot of people, especially women, uh, reading the report and the allegations in it has been very difficult to do. Uh, Representative Lauren Arthur kind of addressed this particular point about why it's important for people to read this report. And I encourage every person to, I mean, it's tough. I understand why people don't want to read it, but if they do, I think they'll come to their own conclusion about whether this person is fit to hold our highest office in the state. And for me, when I heard about these allegations, when I heard the recording of the woman um, several months ago when she was an involuntary witness to this, for me, when I asked myself that question, I came to the answer that this person does not have the moral integrity and does not have the leadership that we as Missourians deserve to move the state forward. What struck me most about the report was not only just the contents of it, which are, you know, th- this whole thing just fundamentally has been gross to me from the beginning, but that the committee, and as Marshall mentioned, with signatures of all seven members on the cover sheet, said that they found the woman credible. They said, essentially, we believe what she is saying in this testimony. We don't think she's making it up. We don't think that she's out to get the governor. We find that she is a credible witness. And that's kind of, it's buried in there a little bit, but they do say, we believe her which is what a lot of advocates for sexual assault victims say they want, is for these women to be believed. And the committee, with the signatures on there, I think, made that statement. Now, let's shift to the legal aspect, because that point, I think, was thrown a bit into question by the revelation the next day after this that a video of the woman testifying uh, I guess to prosecutors mm-hmm. was was given to Greitens' defense team. What two hours or hour after this was released? Timing on this isn't a hundred percent clear. So, 
what's going on here is kind of a timeline issue. There are allegations raised at a hearing yesterday that Gardner committed, Kim Gardner, the prosecutor in St. Louis, who was the one who brought these charges forward, committed serious prosecutorial misconduct. As Scott Rosenblum, one of the defense attorneys for the governor, put it in court, I have never in my 35 years of practicing law accused a prosecutor of misconduct. I am doing that today. So we kind of all really know the timeline here. January 10th, the story runs about this affair and uh, the woman accusing him of, of taking the picture. On January 24th, Kim Gardner, the prosecutor, interviews KS, this woman, and turns over notes to the pros- to the defense attorneys for this. There's a Supreme Court ruling that says all evidence, even if it could benefit the defense, has to be turned over to the defense. There is then a videotaped interview with KS, with Gardner and this private investigator she's done to handle this case. The tape allegedly malfunctions in some way, shape or form. We don't specifically know what the malfunction was. And this private investigator said he didn't take any notes. February 21st, Gardner indicts the governor. April 9th, so we don't know what happened between February 1st and April 9th, The prosecutor, Gardner, says she's learned that the video can be viewed, that she turned it over to IT to see if it could possibly be fixed. We don't know exactly when. This is not in court documents anywhere. We don't know when she gave the tape to the IT professional to review. The next day, Gardner views the tape, she says, for the first time, realizes that this private investigator did, in fact, take notes during this during this interview, follows up with him, gets these notes, and then turns over the video and the notes April 11th. What the court notes and what the uh, prosecution notes in its brief is that any evidence has to be turned over within a 48-hour window after it's discovered. And what they're saying is that they only realized on April 9th that this full tape could be viewed, and April 11th is within that 48-hour window. The defense, of course, disagrees completely. And the defense is asking for the trial to be completely thrown out. To be completely thrown out. What they are saying is that a lot of the details about the rest of the relationship, not the issue that is at the core of this charge, which is whether there was a photo taken, but a lot of the details about her continuing to go see the governor, what happened in some of those situations both before and after the picture incident have changed. What the prosecution is arguing is that the core charge at this, that there was a picture taken while she was semi-nude without her consent, where she had an expectation of privacy, and that it was transmitted in a way that it could be accessed by a computer has never changed. That if you look at her deposition, any of the notes, videotaped interviews, the conversations she had with her husband, none of that has changed. And that's what we need to be focusing on. Defense is pointing out this goes to her credibility. Prosecution saying that's for the jury to decide. And it was interesting. Well, I don't want to say it was interesting, but I I brought this revelation up to a number of legislators. And while they didn't say that it was going to necessarily impact whether he should be impeached or not, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard, who I'm 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 about to play right now, did say that this this video is something that the committee clearly needs to look at. I have not heard that, but I would would encourage the speaker to uh, get that tape and get it for the committee in that film. Uh, I would think if it had it had some bearing on that. I mean, I'd like to see the audio myself to see. I mean, you know, you guys have been in court, sometimes facial expressions, sometimes mannerisms, sometimes actions, or not necessarily a true picture of verbiage. 
And and my guess is that that probably video is not going to get turned over until after the trial because it is evidence or could be used as evidence in this this criminal trial. I, I do have to ask, though, um, I know that people the governor's political standing is really low right now, especially after this report. And as we kind of talked about on the show, a lot of the a lot of the things that the woman testified in that committee are very disturbing. So he's not clearly not being elicited a lot of sympathy right now. But what you just described about how that evidence was handed over to the defense, especially after this very big news event that clearly could impact how the jury perceives Greitens at criminal trial, like even if it regardless of like how it affects the case, how could anyone argue that that is a competent way to deal with this situation? I mean, it's going to come down to whether you believe that what seems to be incompetent, what seems to be not the best way to handle it, may still be within the four corners of the law. And if if the timeline that the that the prosecutor that uh, the gardener has laid out in her brief is correct, she turned it over when she knew she had it within the time limit set out by the scheduling order. We may people, the defense attorney clearly believes that this was not a coincidence, that she had this tape much sooner and didn't hand it over until after this bombshell uh, report. Uh, Scott, uh, Jim Martin actually referenced several times we were up until midnight. We didn't get this tape until late, definitely trying to sell this idea that this was done nefariously. That's going to be up for Judge Burleson to decide. And I have no idea whether that's true. All I know is if I was a criminal defendant and this had happened to me, I would be furious and I would be doing the same thing that Greitens defense attorneys are doing and trying to throw this out now. But as you mentioned, if it's within the confines of of, of, of these these legal guidelines that you talked about, then perhaps the case can still go on. But it's clearly not a good development for Circuit Attorney Gardner. It certainly doesn't look good the way it is initially presented in court. And again, this is going to be up to Judge Burleson to sort through who he believes, what time frame he believes happened here. There were other developments in this in the legal arena. If this report had not come out, we could probably spend a whole show talking about it. But among other things, uh, Judge Burleson placed a gag order mm-hmm. on uh, a number of participants. I'm not sure if Greitens was was one of them because, as you mentioned, he he, he was able to speak out. Um, I I'm, was looking at Twitter while we're recording the show. I, I think it was clarified that Greitens may not be affected by that. Defendants have always had the right to publicly get up and proclaim their innocence. As Burleson put it in, in court on Thursday, he can get up on the courthouse and shout from you know the rooftops, I believe that I am innocent. Nothing is happening here. So I, I And it was interesting because one of his other attorneys did stand up in court on Thursday and just seek some kind of clarification as to how the gag order applies. But what I've noticed is that the defense team is is sticking pretty well to the whole no press conferences on the courthouse steps, but they are exercising a loophole that basically says if you put deposition testimony into a motion with the court or you use it during a court hearing, then it becomes fair game because it's an open court, knowing that we as journalists are probably going to report on it. Well, I, I happened to see a transcript of, uh, of a hearing where they happened to be talking about whether the ex-husband's attorney, Al Watkins, was paid for, paid with by a third party. And then 
it signals to me that that's going to become an issue. It's a, it's a story that I ended up writing about, but I'm not going to dwell on that too much because it's, it is admittingly a side issue from this entire thing. And let, let, I, me, and I, let me just say this, too. I, I can personally attest that the gag order does not apply to promoted tweets because I, every day I get a, a, t, a tweet from Team Greitens uh, asking me to read the article uh, by, by, I believe it was a Fox News article regarding um, the uh, woman maybe having dreamed part of um, what she said in her testimony. And, and that's what prompted the gag order in the first place, because there was a filing earlier in the week w- with what you just mentioned. And also Ed Dowd was doing a lot of TV interviews. There was a pretty big media blitz like Monday, Tuesday. I, I, I think that not only was... Gardner upset by that, but but being at that hearing, I think Burleson was like, okay, the attorneys and the witnesses in this case clearly need to stop doing what they're doing. They're still allowed to say some mm-hmm. things, yes, but they they are restricted by what they can say now, and it is it is uh, based off legal precedent that uh, judges do have the right to do this as a way to make sure that the jury pool isn't tainted. Um, it's hard to make an argument, though, that the, the House committee report may not influence how, how jury jurors uh, deal with this situation. So I honestly would not be surprised if we don't see another attempt because of the release of this House report to have Burleson take this as a bench trial instead of a jury trial. He's already rejected it once. But he himself has expressed, as I said a couple times before, some concerns about the way that evidence was handled in this, that it isn't precisely as a court of law would do it. There's no cross-examination. He's brought it up a couple of times. And I wonder, I obviously can't read the judge's mind. I'd be making a lot of money if I could. Um, I wonder if he isn't going to weigh more seriously this time having himself do this trial instead of a, a jury hear it. So as we wrap up, on 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 a podcast that I predicted last week would be quite momentous. Uh, I want to just go around the proverbial table because one of our guests is in Jefferson City. Just a final takeaway thoughts about this week, Marshall. Um, a very exhausting, tiring, tiring week, um, and I, I believe I believe a sad week, as you alluded to at the beginning of this podcast. I I, I really it's a, it's interesting to see how. Um, now, Todd Richardson was a supporter of Greitens. Uh, Jay Barnes, an early supporter of Greitens, uh, who hosted a um, an, uh, a meet and greet three years ago. Um, but you know, but the, they may not have been like really close. But uh, perhaps you know, at least the the House leadership and the Senate leadership had a a fairly good working relationship with uh, with the governor a year ago. Uh, that relationship is now shattered, and I don't think it can be put back together again. And it's at this point, anyone who is not openly supportive of the governor, um, does that person now become labeled a career politician uh, by Team Greitens? And, and one other thing I should mention as well, the, the Missouri Republican Party apparatus has been the only one, I guess, in recent months that has uh, stuck, stuck by the governor and defended him um, as, uh, as all this uh, began. But uh, the, they've been quiet. I have not seen any press release, no emails, no tweets from the Missouri Republican Party apparatus uh, coming to Greitens' defense. Rachel. I feel sorry for chaos. Um, You know that, as, as Representative Arthur said, this was probably hard for her to testify to. 
And you just know that she's going to get up on the stand in St. Louis because we know that she's going to be a witness. And it, you know, may not be aggressive. They may not yell at her. But you know that Greitens' attorneys, knowing who they are, are just going to tear at her. And she didn't want this to come out in the first place. I think that my takeaway from from this week is um, – and I am pausing not only for effect, but but also because I'm trying to make this point as, as well as I could. Elections have consequences. The reason we're in this situation is because Missourians voted for Eric Reitens to be governor. There was a Democratic candidate, Chris Coster, who ran a very aggressive campaign saying why Greitens shouldn't be in office. And the voters decided not to listen to him and voted Greitens in office. I think that there are reasons why legislators are very hesitant to overturn elections, especially ones where it's the leader of the state. Because the the, the governorship of Missouri, to me, takes on a different aura than other elected offices, more than like Speaker of the House or state legislature. Like, they, they, they're supposed to command a different level of respect, and they're supposed to have some deference to them. I've certainly taken that attitude with Matt Blunt and Jane Nixon, and I've, and I've also taken that attitude with Eric Greitens, too, because they, I, I believe the governorship is often more important than the person in it. So I think that the decision that Governor Greitens is going to have to make over the next few weeks and months, um, if he firmly believes that what is in that report is is lies and this is a witch hunt and he has evidence to prove that, then he needs to make his case. He needs to make his case to legislators and he needs to make that case to the, the people of Missouri directly at the, as much as he can because I know that he's legally constricted. But I, I think that over the next few months, especially with us, especially if he decides not to resign, and we are in this limbo period. I mean, the 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 perception of the governorship and the state is on the line, and we need to we need this is this there's there's no joy in me saying that, and there's no joy in me dealing with this entire situation. This is this is one of the this this is this. I mean, as you can tell, it's difficult to me to even describe how how I am even cart- compartmentalizing how to describe how I'm feeling about even covering the story. And I'm sure that everybody else is, too. But next week is another week, and we'll be back for another podcast on the, the week's events. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow uh, Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. Follow Marshall on Twitter at... At Marshall G. Report. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.
If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.